If you're getting to this episode without having given a listen to episode 34 on maker ed and autism, hit pause and back up one episode. This one won't land without its predecessor. In fact, when I recorded this interview, it was intended as a segment that I would drop into 34, but the more I tried to make it work, the less I liked it. I didn't want to interrupt the previous conversation, and I didn't want to give short shrift to Dave Wells, who's a critical piece of the maker educator puzzle in New York City. So much so that I'm mashing up some of the conversation I have had with him previously on the show to fill in some context on NYSIDE, the New York Hall of Science, where Dave works, and to round out the episode a bit. Before I introduce Dave, I hope you'll subscribe and review the show wherever you grab your podcast. It's a huge help, so thanks in advance. Also, this DJ is always taking requests. I have some exciting episodes coming up. Live interviews from the 10th Annual Emoticon, the New York City Youth Digital Media and Technology Festival. I have a conversation on equity and social justice with Dr. Gretchen givens Generet from Duquesne University. A live play interview where I'll be talking with an educator from the South Bronx and his student while they play Monster Hunter together. But that said, I want to cover the topics that you want to hear more about. To share your ideas, I'm on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. I hope you'll get in touch. The first part of the interview you're about to hear is from the Manhattan Makeathon earlier this year, where I had the chance to sit with Dave and talk about the work at NYSI. If you prefer to skip forward to the details in the second half about how Dave and the NSF-funded research team from NYU and Education Development Center implemented that project, head to about 8 minutes and 32 seconds. Dave Wells, Director of Maker Programming, is responsible for all activities in NYSI's makerspace. He oversees the design and implementation of maker-related programs, engaging families, students, and visitors of all ages. He's also a maker of things in his own right, and he designs interactive art installations using discarded technology, audio experimentation, and digital media of all kinds. Enjoy my follow-up with Dave Wells. Go. This is the no touching, no such thing. Just say, this is no such thing. This is no such thing. Perfect. Dave is with uh, the New York Hall of Science, NYSCI, which is an amazing New York-based science museum, uh, but they are doing all kinds of things. Give me two or three lessons. You're somebody who knows a fair amount about creating uh, sort of maker-driven experiences um, that have learning as the kind of focal point, uh, but also paying attention to what tools and what environment that all happens in. Mm -hmm. Um, Give me two or three lessons that have been really crucial to you that um, to those who are getting started with a makerspace, you always sort of uh, lay down for them. Well, it's interesting. When we do work with schools or other informal um, institutions to build out either programming or full maker spaces. Um, really the the most important thing that I try to lay in the foundation is we don't provide curriculum or specific saying, here, do this in your classroom or do this in your program. We really want the teachers, the you know, facilitators, educators to build their own capacity for designing and building these programs. So really it starts with the kind of thought process and how you approach learning yourself. So I would say trust how you learn and then it, it, through my experience, that has helped me be very compassionate to how others learn because obviously everyone learns in their own unique way, yet there are overlaps. So really investigating that, allowing um, for time um, to explore that. And I think 
people don't give themselves time and they don't give themselves uh, the space. Um, so those are two kind of really, you know, hard things that I think are very important. Um, and depending on your situation, you know, you might have more access to time <laughs> or staff. Um, say, for instance, some programs we run, we are very heavy staff because of the tool base um, stuff. But I, I would say to get back to the <laughs> advice um, is really like dig into your community, whether it be your classroom and your school, whether it be your serving, you know, your local community, but really figure out what they need and want. Um, and then you can kind of design around what your resources are and how you can support that. Um, so it's really kind of like a dichotomy between what you want to accomplish, but then also what your community wants and needs. Mm. Yeah. What, um, one of the things I love about what happens at NISI with, in, uh, with respect to maker education is that uh, you seem like you've brought an ethos there that is very much about the blend of high tech and low tech. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's it's definitely true. Where you know we have a you know saying we try to say is like this is an equal opportunity tool space. Uh, you know, no tool is better than the other. They just have different reasons for existing, um, and we really try to focus on best tool for the job. So if in fact the best tool for the job is you know, a high-end, high-tech tool, we do have access to that. But sometimes, you know, paper and pencil is the best entry point into figuring out what, you know, your objectives are and how you can reach those objectives. Um, and more often than not, you know, some of the higher-tech tools such as, you know, 3D printers and laser cutters and even within the, you know, like coding world with Arduinos and things, um, people are really drawn to this. Like, oh, I want to do this, I want to do this. But then it really, again, goes back to the idea of time. You know, that... It takes a lot of time to learn how to use, you know, these tools even on a basic level. Mm. And so building that ability to kind of go through the process, you know, build up from basically either ground, you know, ground level or wherever you are in your understanding of those tools. Um, but it's really important for us to show the possibility of all the tools. And then when the kids decide what they want to make. Um, they can pull together, okay, I'm going to use some woodworking tools, I'm going to use some digital design tools, I'm going to use some fabrication tools, and they, you know, are, are seeing the kind of eclectic nature of what making is, because, you know, whether it's a discipline or a tool, you're never going to use one discipline or one tool for anything. You're going to use multiple disciplines or multiple tools together, and how do they support each other, and which one would be better than another. Yeah. A lot of people, I think, um, this is a special question, especially for you with uh, perspective coming out of a science museum. Um, I think a lot of people think that maker education is special in that it has the potential to um, be a tool for broadening participation in science. Um, do you believe that? And, and if so, why? Um, I actually have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, it's... I find, first and foremost, um, though I would say, you know, I've come, you know, I've, I've made a lot of things in my life and, I, you know, before the maker movement really, you know, rose up, I definitely was an artist and, you know, my dad's an engineer, so I've been doing this for a long time, but um, I'm really, first and foremost, an educator and one of my biggest roles as an educator is to find an entry point. And if people say that making is a great entry point or they're curious about it and you can frame it around that and it has some, you know, substantiation in their mind, that's what's important to me though I'm an advocate for you know making I'm an advocate for the maker movement I don't think it's like the answer to everything I just think 
if we can find this entry point into how you figure out the best way to accommodate people's learning process, um, that's really the goal. And if making is the entry point into that, then hey, this is awesome. You know, let's 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 run with this um, for as long as people want to. <laughs> I love uh, I love a pragmatist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I probably fall in that category. <laughs> so that was Dave at Manhattan Makeathon in May of this year, setting you up with some context for Dave's expertise as a participant in the research project that we discussed last week with Wendy and Christy. I followed up with him virtually to ask some follow-up questions about the maker ed training that he's been leading for educators in inclusion environments through NYU's ASD Nest program. Here's that interview. So Dave, students for this program uh, come into this sort of uh, club environment within the school context. And uh, what did they experience over the course of the program as you guys were researching it? Um, well, I mean, they start out, you know, being introduced to 3D design um, and different tools that you could create 3D designs with, you know, something as simple as a piece of paper up to cardboard and tape all the way through to CAD software and then and then 3D printed objects. But we also um, integrate circuit um, in there. So they use, um, you know, batteries, wires, copper tape, LEDs, and they're really building the skills throughout the whole first half of the program. Then, you know, a key component of this program is that they they actually decide what sort of project they want to apply these skills that they built to. And so the second half of the program, they specifically focus on just their personal projects. Um, they also have the opportunity to group, um, you know, to, to do group projects with a couple other kids if they decide to do that. Um, and those are all um, between the skill building and the final projects. They do consultation sessions. So the kids get in small groups and they discuss with the facilitator, how do we come up with project ideas, brainstorming, thinking about how to apply these skills? Mm -hmm. What can we make with these skills? Um, what sort of real world projects can we do? What sort of challenges do we have that we want to solve with the skills we've built? And then they spent the spend the whole second half building those projects. I love that. So it it really um, it kept even though you were sort of uh, this was kind of a pop up maker space in the sense that it, it wasn't a standing uh, spot that existed in the school. You were really kind of in in science labs and places that you could kind of make into that. Um, but the value of kind of youth driven uh, experiences really uh, carried forward, which it sounds like. Um, it, it sounds from what you describe, which is exciting. How did you guys handle uh, now? These were inclusion um, groups, right? So, mm -hmm. how did you think about um, pairing and combining students in ways that um, emphasized what uh, assets people were coming with to the project? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, what was really interesting about that whole process was this is where the teachers really um, kind of pulled in their expertise and understanding of the kids in their classroom, the kids that they knew and who to kind of, um, uh, hopefully try to get into the program. You know, it was definitely a student selected program. So the teachers weren't like, okay, you come in, you come in, you come in, but they promoted it in a way that, you know, was hopefully, um, intriguing or interesting to a, a broad range of students. And they were really integral in that whole process to get the kids in. And then also, um, you know, uh, with the NYU and the Nest um, 
part of this program really helped kind of support ideas on how to best, I guess, um, fill these programs up. And at each, at each school, it was very different. So they had, you know, sometimes they would have, you know, um, much more nest students than they would, um, you know, what they call typical learners. Um, and then uh, in other you know places, they would have more typical learners. And it's just a matter of um, who really opted in. Mm-hmm. And then how do we kind of curate that experience for them? Yeah. And how, what was your um, biggest takeaway in terms of um, this as a a new kind of learner and a new kind of uh, sort of what they were coming with and trying to achieve through the research? Um, Just for you personally, as somebody who's worked in in, uh, this space for a long time and, and been working on what it looks like to deliver high quality maker education experiences. Um, I'm just curious what your biggest takeaway was. Um, I think, uh, you know, going into this, it was like, wow, this is a, this is a pretty colossal project and it has the potential to be much bigger than that even. Mm -hmm. And I really feel I was a bit nervous about the program fitting into this sort of setting and it was interesting um, working with everybody to kind of call together all of the you know skill sets we had in different you know I mean approaches. Um, me and my staff went through uh, um, ASD training with the Nest program, oh, so that really helped us, and that was um, you know a huge benefit to us. And one thing I thought was very nice about that it was certain aspects because we tried to obviously be at NISI, you know. 100% are, you know, successful. And hearing some of their strategies and techniques we already used in our program, but not necessarily specifically, but then it helped us kind of hone those skills. So in that aspect, it was great for us as a takeaway, because then we could apply that to any, you know, any range of programs we run at the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think as the whole program goes, how this kind of molded into the form that it is um, in this setting, it was really, I think, um, I don't know. It's, it, it was just an amazing experience to see how something you know could change and morph depending on its usage, in a way that you might not have ever thought could be possible. You know, so it was nice to see. Um, I hesitate using the term success very often because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of a challenging term for me. But like seeing it, you know, change and you know. Uh, be a success, I guess is the only word I can think of is, was such a great, uh, experience to me. And I was a little bit, you know, um, unsure going into it. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, can you describe a few of your favorite projects that came out of it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one, oh man, now I'm, I'm going to mess up the name of it. I think one of them was a board game. It was called, I think it was called the race for Africa. Mm. Um, and this, one of the kids in the program was very into history, was very into, um, politics, um, uh, espionage, all these, you know, really interesting things. And, uh, he created a game of basically superpowers around the world going into, you know, almost like risk style you know, take over Africa. Um, yeah. and he had all the aspects of the, you know, obviously the 
challenging political nature of this and was really, I think <laughs> the way he would present it was, I mean, he was kind of adding this whole level of kind of sarcasm towards the, the powers, which I thought incredibly complex for a middle school kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there was one other um, kid, in another school that created his own, um, you know, video gaming computer, not necessarily like high end games, but you can play you know, Tetris and, um, and he used a Raspberry Pi and a small LCD screen um, to create this. He 3D printed the body of it. Um, and um, let's see what else there was. Um, there was this one um, girl that created her own kind of fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they were based on probably something I don't know about, some sort of online community. <laughs> but she she kind of morphed and created her own versions of them and 3D printed them, which I thought was really um, very cool. And also to kind of incorporate the designs under the constraints of a 3D printer and you know understanding that, but they were very dynamic creatures, mm. which I thought was very cool. Um, but one of the more interesting aspects, I think, say, for instance, with um, – the kids and their projects, like there was one project and I, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was half 3d printed and half cardboard. Mm-hmm. And the kids response, like, uh, you know, when they were explaining it to me, um, last weekend was, Oh, well, this is, um, this isn't finished yet, but I created this cardboard piece to, you know, do this. I'm going to finish it later. And the club's over, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's actually something that kind of spills outside of the club and, creates you know this urge like this project is mine so it doesn't end with the club (laughs) it's going to continue and i just didn't finish it by this but that's fine because i'm still showing it and i think in a lot of ways i mean imagine yourself at a science fair and in a middle school and you didn't finish your project you would probably be a little bit more anxious or nervous about that Mm -hmm. um and hey this is a work in progress and i'm going to finish this and i thought just that kind of nonchalant confidence was very um telling about the way the program was run. Yeah. That feels like a pretty, a pretty positive indicator. Yeah. Um, and now the last question I have for you is the educators who were involved in the program were, uh, your other learner, right? Cause these folks mm-hmm. had not, uh, run maker education programs. So, um, how did you scaffold the experience for them? Yeah. Well, I mean, initially, cause we do, uh, run professional developments for teachers around making. So, we really started with that kind of what is making, what is the maker movement? Um, what does this mean for education? Um, how is it beneficial? What are the challenges? Um, and kind of went through that. Um, we utilized the curriculum that we use um, at NISI for the Make Academy program as the foundation and the kind of entry point into the making. Um, and so the teachers actually did these projects that we do with the kids in our program. Um, and what's interesting about any type of making, um, and especially even like higher technology stuff, um, it's not necessarily about um, developmental age. It's mm-hmm. about absolute experience. And if you're entering, you know, a coding program and you've never coded before, you know, it, to be honest, if you're 10 or 40, it, I don't think there's really much of a difference. And it's yeah. kind of interesting to see the teachers explore these and be very uncomfortable getting completely out of their comfort zone. And I have to say, uh, throughout the, the program, seeing them kind of start taking charge of things, some of them were way more, oh, technology's not my thing, or, oh, I don't even know what 3D design is, mm. and them really 
stepping up and just like doing it. <laughs> and then there's the other tier, which is the pedagogical aspect or the, you know, stepping back a little bit, you know, where in school it's, it's a very different game, you know, or um, it's something that you're not like, you're supposed to reach these certain specific goals. Um, and then in an after school setting, um, especially with this program, the children are the ones defining the goals and you're there just to support them. And to come out of that also was a very, you know, big challenge for the teachers. And I mean, this past program, as you mentioned, we kind of started fading out a little bit. Um, this past program that we just showcased, we, um, I visited the programs a few times, but that was it. The teachers owned the facilitation mm -hmm. and I couldn't have been more um <laughs> happy with the outcome and i have to say and i did say this to some of the teachers so i don't mind saying it here i was a little bit nervous because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you never know what's going to happen but sure. they i mean i don't know it was yeah it was amazing and just to see that wow this is living on its own now and we are really just more of a side bar to it or you know we're there for support mm -hmm. but in the end they're the ones running it yeah you is, you can stand back which was which was uh the point right exactly um, David, sounds like an amazing project. Um, thank you for spending some time and, and, um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, what topics we, we, uh, can rope you back in to visit the show for. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anytime I'm, I'm like totally into it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dave. Yep. Absolutely. Take care. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode Zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 